The text for this morning's message is 1 Samuel 12, 16 to 25. 1 Samuel 12, 16 to 25. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Fear not, you have done this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after vain things which cannot profit or save, for they are vain. For the Lord will not cast away his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. The situation now behind this text is that Israel has demanded from Samuel that they give them a king so that they could be like all the other nations. And we can go back to 1 Samuel 8 and trace the development of this tragedy through. In 1 Samuel 8, what we find out is that Samuel is old and his sons are corrupt. And you read this in verse 5. It says, Behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to govern us like all the nations. And Samuel, of course, is immensely displeased by this rejection of God. And he goes to God for counsel. And God says in verse 7, Hearken to the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over you, over them. And then in verse 9, God says, Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so Samuel tells them something about this king or these kings. They're going to take sons. They're going to take daughters. They're going to tax them heavily. There'll be many wicked kings in Israel that will bring misery upon the people. But the people are not persuaded. And it says in verse 19, No. But we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the other nations, and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so Samuel accedes, and he makes Saul king in chapter 10. And in chapter 11, Saul, in a first great battle, goes up against Nahash and the Ammonites, and he defeats them, and the people are ecstatic, and Samuel gathers them together at Gilgal, And they have an inauguration ceremony. And he makes Saul 
king in a more official way and renews the kingdom. And Then comes the inauguration message from Samuel, and it isn't all that the people had hoped it would be in chapter 12. In fact, there is good news in it, but the bad news comes first, and it is very bad. And he makes sure that they feel its badness. Verse 17 of chapter 12. Is it not wheat harvest today? The day when you don't want rain. I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. And God does that. He sends thunder and rain upon this people for their wickedness in asking for a human king. And they fear and tremble. And verse 19 says that they cry out, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And now... They have felt the evil of their deed. It has pricked them deeply. They have cried out for mercy. And so here comes the good news. Verse 20. Fear not. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after vain things which cannot profit or save, for they are vain. Brothers and sisters, that is pure gospel. In spite of the fact that you have sinned terribly in asking for yourself a king, in spite of the fact that this king now reigns over you whom it was a sin to ask for, in spite of the fact that nothing you do is going to blot out the negative and miserable consequences of having a whole line of kings that will bring misery upon you. In spite of all that, fear not. I will not cast you away. Fear not, says the Lord. Now what's the ground of this gospel of fearlessness in the face of our own sin? Verse 22 gives the ground of the gospel. For the Lord will not cast away His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. What's the basis of the fearlessness of the sinful people of Israel? Well, you could say, first of all, it's a promise The Lord says, I will not cast away my people, in essence. The Lord will not cast away his people. But that is not the bottom of the foundation. That's not the rock on which their hope is finally resting, is it? Because the question rises, why should God not cast away this people? What's the basis of his decision not to cast away this people? And that's given in the next phrase. For his great namesake. 
the rock-bottom foundation of the hope of sinners who've asked for themselves a king instead of God is the unwavering commitment of God to His own name. First, God is committed to His name. And then secondly, on the basis of that, and derivatively, He is committed to His people. Now, how does Samuel make that connection for us? How does Samuel explain why it is that God's commitment to His name results in a commitment to a sinful people? There isn't any more important question you can ask this morning than why should God's allegiance to His holy name commit Him to me so that I can be fearless and not worry about being cast off? That's the most important question you can ask this morning. Can you answer it? How does God's commitment to His name produce a commitment to sinners like you and me? The last part of the verse gives the answer for Samuel. He says, Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. In other words, it was God's good pleasure so to unite you to Himself that His name is at stake in your destiny. Let me say that again. It is God's good pleasure so to unite you to Himself that in your destiny, His own name is at stake. Or to say it another way, God has chosen freely so to embrace and possess you, that what becomes of you reflects upon His name and its honor. There's gospel, brothers and sisters. There's the root and foundation of the hope of the gospel. There are two sermons in this verse. Next week's sermon and this week's sermon. Now, let me sum up next week's sermon so that you can see it here because I'm not going to use this for my text next week. But it's all here. Next week's sermon is entitled, God Has Pleasure in Election. You can see that. God has freely, it has pleased the Lord to choose Israel for Himself to make them a people. They didn't deserve that at all among all the peoples of the world. Therefore, my point next week is God delights in unconditional election. And that's right here. It has pleased the Lord. It has been His good pleasure 
to make this nation his own when they did not deserve it. That's next week's sermon. This week's sermon says there is a pleasure and a delight deeper than his delight in Israel. More fundamental, more primary, more rock solid than his delight in making Israel his own. Namely, his delight in his name. And you can see that here, can't you? Why does he choose a people? For himself. So that when he acts not to not to uh, cast them away, but to spare them, why does it say he does it? For his great namesake. Therefore, beneath God's delight in his people is a delight in his own name. And his delight in choosing a people rests upon his delight in his own name. And so we need to talk about this fundamental delight this morning. God's pleasure in His name. What does that mean? What does it mean that God has pleasure in His name? Well, you might answer that question by just saying, it's the same thing you said three weeks ago, isn't it? That God delights in Himself in the panorama of His perfections as they're reflected back to Him in the radiance of His Son, who is His very image. Isn't that His name, His character, His glory, His essence? Isn't that the name of God? And the answer is yes. The Old Testament and New Testament often use the term name of God simply to refer to the essence, the character, the glory of God. I don't think that's what it means here, only. I think it's something a little different and bigger than that. Here's what I think name means, the name of God means, in 1 Samuel 12, 22. I think it means the glory of God gone public. The glory of God gone public. Another word for that is reputation, fame, renown. We use the name, the word name that way, don't we? We say, that person is making a name for himself. What do we mean? We mean a reputation. Or we say, maybe you should have bought a name brand washing machine, you would have this trouble. What do we mean name brand? You mean a brand with a good reputation for quality. So I think name is being used that way here in verse 22 of chapter 12, namely God's reputation for His great namesake, for the sake of His reputation, His fame, His renown, He will not cast off His people. Now, let me see if I can direct you to some texts where this is supported, where this idea of why God has chosen a people, why He doesn't cast them off, why He saves them for His reputation. I'll take you first to Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 11. And in Jeremiah, chapter 13, God is describing the people of Israel as a um, garment, a waist cloth, it's called, that he had bound around himself so that it would be the glory of God. Just like a, a nice dress 
or a nice suit can accent a person's dignity. So God had chosen Israel for a garment. Listen to what it says in verse 11, chapter 13. For as the waist cloth clings to the loins of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the house of Judah cling to me, says the Lord. Why? That they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. So what does it mean? Doesn't this explain to us what it means that, that He chose Israel to be a name for Him? It means to be a praise for Him, to be a glory for Him, to be His reputation and fame and renown in the earth. That's why He chose them, so that in treating Him the way He treats them, the whole world would say, what a God! Israel was chosen to make a name for God. David. Let's take another text. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 23. David is talking now, and he's talking about why God chose Israel in Egypt, brought them out of the Red Sea, through the wilderness, into the Promised Land, brought down Jericho, and conquered the nations. Now, why? did God do that? And David says here in chapter 7, verse 23 of 2 Samuel, What other nation on earth is like the people of Israel, whom God went to redeem to be His people, making Himself a name and doing for them great and terrible things by driving out before His people a nation in its gods. So when God went down to redeem His people from Egypt, to carry them through the wilderness and bring them into the promised land, on whose behalf was He acting? Well, yes, the people were saved. But this text and so many texts in the Old Testament highlight the more fundamental motive of God. He was acting to make Himself a name, a fame, a reputation, a renown, a praise, and a glory in the earth. That's why He was acting in this way toward His people Israel. Let's go back to the Exodus. We better check this out because the Exodus, let's go to Exodus chapter 9. The Exodus in the Old Testament is what the cross and resurrection of Christ are in the New Testament. All the prophets and poets looked back to this great act of deliverance when God had come down, had shown His might and bared His holy arm and delivered a rebellious people for His name. Why did He do that? Why did He take ten plagues to get this people out when He could have done it in one? He could have started with the death angel. The verse 16 of chapter 9 is so important that of all the verses Paul could have chosen from the Old Testament, he chooses this verse in Romans 9.17 to describe the purpose of God in bringing the people out of Egypt. Let's read it together. God says to Pharaoh in verse 16, But for this purpose I have let you live, or given you life, 
to show you my power so that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Now, what was the point of the Exodus? The point of the Exodus was to gain God a worldwide reputation. Plain and simple. To gain God a worldwide reputation. God delivered His people with ten magnificent strokes, split the Red Sea, caused them to walk in the wilderness with miraculous quail and manna. The shoes didn't wear out on their feet. The shirt didn't wear out on their backs. Rocks were split for their water. The law came at Sinai. They conquered nations crossing the Jordan. Jericho fell before them. Why? So that Minneapolis today would stand up and say, What a God! What a God! That's why He did it. To win a reputation in America. Russia, Argentina, Iran, Albania. Did the prophets and poets of the Old Testament interpret the Exodus this way? You bet they did. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 63. And what Isaiah does here in chapter 63 verse 12 is simply take the words of Moses in Exodus 9.16 and drive them into eternity. He says that God is a God who caused His glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them. Why? To make for Himself an everlasting name. In other words, God had in view when He reared back and split the Red Sea, eternity. It says in Revelation that we will sing around the throne forever the song of Moses. He was making a name for Himself that would be lifted, praised, glorified, honored throughout all eternity. That's why He split the sea and saved a rebellious people. Listen to these words from Psalm 106, verses 7 and 8. This is just amazing. I call it gospel logic. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider Thy wonderful works. They did not remember the abundance of Thy steadfast love, but rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea. Yet He saved them for His namesake that He might make known His mighty power. Gospel logic, that is. It's the most precious, hope-giving logic in all the Bible. Let me put the text in 1 Samuel 12 and Psalm 106 beside each other. Watch this. They rebelled at the Red Sea and did not remember the loving acts of God. He saved them. <laughs> he saved them. 
Why? For His great name's sake. Here's our text. They chose a king like Saul instead of God. And he didn't cast them off, but said, Fear not! Fear not! Why? For His great name's sake. Do you see gospel logic here? Do you see the foundation of your hope today? What is your hope? Let's go to Joshua and see how gospel logic is used in prayer when there's a desperate circumstance for God's people. Joshua chapter 7, here's the situation. This great man of God, this God-centered man, has taken the people through a divided Jordan River. Jericho has fallen on the ground before the trumpet blow. And they go up against Ai, and they are defeated. And Joshua is utterly stunned. He is stunned. He doesn't know what to say. He never dreamed it could happen. And so he goes to God in one of the most desperate prayers in all the Bible, verses 8 and 9 of Joshua 7. And he says, O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do for thy great name? You see the gospel logic? He's pressing on God. What are you going to do for your name if they wipe us out, God? Now, let me ask you. Do you pray for mercy on the basis of God's love for His own name? Do you ask for help as a sinner on the basis of God's unwavering, eternal commitment always to act for the glory of His name. Do you? Or have you bought in to the American way? What is the basis of hope and joy in America? You are. Self is the basis of the gospel. You are the ground of your joy. You are the ground of your hope. You are the ground of your dignity. You, 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 me, 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 self, self, self. So that the message that I am preaching this morning, you tell me where you have heard this gospel before. Where do you hear messages like this today? And it's everywhere in the Bible. God saves sinners for His own namesake. And when you get desperate, plead to God on the basis of God. Not on the basis of yourself. It is sand, brothers and sisters. It is sand. But there is a rock. There is a rock. The impossibility that God will ever, ever act in any way but in conformity to an infinite delight in His own name.
Now, what are we going to do with the destruction of Israel in the Babylonian captivity? They keep on rebelling so many times. And God is patient generation after generation after generation. And finally He is fed up and He cleans house and sends them away out of the promised land. And Ezekiel experienced this. A man after God's own heart, full of God. What's he going to do? How is he going to handle this? Ezekiel chapter 36. Let's go there. God comes to Ezekiel in this chapter. And what a message of hope and God-centered hope it is. God comes and He tells Ezekiel why there can yet be hope for a nation that for hundreds of years have grumbled against God. Verse 20, God says, But when they came to the nations wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that men said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of His land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel caused to be profaned among the nations which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. When all your hopes are gone and you lie oppressed under the judgment of God Himself, there is yet one hope that God will yet act not for your sake, but for the sake of His holy name. 